Thank you, worship team. It's a tough act to follow, but I'll do my best. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. My message this morning is titled, A Recipe for Endurance. We're not going to read the entire chapter, as it's, it's quite lengthy, but I want to point out select passages throughout Luke chapter 10 in which Jesus gives instructions for those who labor in his kingdom. I felt this was an appropriate consideration for New Life Church because of the situation we find ourselves in uh, through the summer and the fall. We've called Pastor uh, Gareth and his family, but they're not going to arrive for some months. This leaves us without a full-time shepherd. That increases the workload for many who already do so much. Uh, We can easily become uh, overwhelmed, uh, frustrated, or discouraged. Thankfully, the Bible is a comprehensive resource which addresses all of our needs. Every problem known to humanity finds a solution in God's Word. And I think Luke chapter 10 provides some of the ingredients necessary for any recipe for endurance. We need to endure. We need to persevere in the work that we do for his glory. There are three scenarios presented in this chapter in which Jesus offers correction or guidance relative to our service. And if we heed the words of Jesus, then we can avoid some pitfalls which hinder our perseverance in service. Before we look at these corrections from Jesus and by way of introduction, let's look at verses 1 and 2 because in verses 1 and 2, Jesus introduces uh, to us the need for endurance. Why do we need to endure? Luke chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. After this, in verse 1, it refers back to chapter 9, where Jesus sent out the 12 apostles. Jesus here is expanding the mission by sending 72 ahead. Only Luke, interestingly, records uh, the mission of the 72. And although this is a literal passage, this is an actual event that happens, it's also considered symbolic of the nations of the world in Genesis chapter 10, that number 70. There's some textual discrepancy, 70 or 72 from some manuscripts, but regardless of that discrepancy, the symbolic meaning survives that discrepancy. The gospel is for the whole world. Before Peter... And Paul realized that the mission was to the world. It was implied symbolically here in Luke chapter 10. The mission of the church is to the entire world. 
Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. This is a classic missionary verse. This is a classic call to missions. Because it tells us the urgency. Time, even, is short. It invokes within us, I think, this romanticized version, visions of faraway lands where people are hungry for the gospel. It's a missionary text. I think maybe, though, that these glamorized images cause us to put off doing service because we imagine that someday we'll go on mission. But what would we do there if we did finally go on mission? What would we do in this faraway land, this other place, where we finally decide that we're going to do the things that God has called us to do? I think what would we do is uh, start a church. That's what Gareth did in India. We would gather folks together. We'd preach a sermon from God's Word. We'd have skilled musicians like our worship team lead our worship. We would pray together. We'd start some home groups and discipleship groups, children and youth program, a welcome and outreach program, support some others who would go out and do the same things. My point is this. You see, the church, this church, New Life Church, is God's chosen instrument for exerting influence in the world and revealing his character to the people around. We must submit to his design and methods. Here, where we are, even if it may seem inferior to the methods of men, a small thing. Pastor Gareth sent out a very encouraging devotional about small things this week and how God uses small things. See, man will fail. Man's methods, man's schemes... Everything that we see, the glorious things, the Burj Khalifa, all of this magnificent architecture, and all that man is doing that seems so amazing, it will all fail, it will all end, and God delights in using that which the world may disregard, like the small things. He has always used his church, and that's how he glorifies himself. Because in all these other schemes, man himself is glorified. But when God accomplishes his purposes through the small and disregarded things, he is glorified. And we do glorify him because of what he does in and through us right here in New Life Church. At some point, we have to simply engage where we are and avail ourselves to the opportunities that God has given us to invest in eternity right here right here in New Life Church. Grow where you're planted. This is a mantra that we've all heard. New Life Church, the mission of New Life Church, is the mission. This is another extension of what Jesus was doing with the 72. We're in expansion. Back in verse 1, we see that Jesus sent them out two by two. That's important for us to consider. Why did Jesus... Send them out two by two. And I think it's easy to, 
to figure that out for mutual support and encouragement. God doesn't really need us, but we need him, and we need one another. We need to come alongside others in the ministry of this church, and we need to do it for Christ because of all that he has done for us. It's important. There's so many that do so much. And you, sometimes we may think that they have it. It's, it's okay. It's running along smoothly. It's being done. They've got it. But listen, brothers and sisters, we need one another. And there are people in this community right here, sitting next to you, behind you or in front of you, they have needs. They need you. And we need to join together and be an encouragement for one another and be that person who will come alongside and offer a word of encouragement because it can be discouraging. It can be. We can, a life of service is not easy. <laughs> it's not an easy thing what, what Jesus has called us to do, and that's what he describes here. It's not simple. Now, my message today is about endurance, but until we decide to join in the mission, we don't really need to concern ourselves with endurance, right? We need to endure in the mission that, that God has called us to. But first of all, we need to be involved in that mission. Once we have decided to enlist as laborers in God's kingdom and stop wasting our lives on leisurely or possibly even riotous living, then we can benefit from Jesus' instructions about service and learn how to endure. Because as we see in, in his description here, he's not sending them out on something that's easy. It's difficult. The last part of verse 2 says, Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus alludes here at the beginning to principles he more fully explains later. There is, Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. And it's not our burden to take upon ourselves these statistics that Pastor Gareth shared with us last week, if you remember. They're overwhelming statistics about all the people groups that are unreached in the world. There's millions and millions and millions of people who've never heard the name of Jesus. But that's not our burden to take upon ourselves because he is the Lord of the harvest and we pray to him to send laborers and we enlist in the process ourselves. In the following verses down to verse 17, Jesus gives instructions for the mission of the 72. He describes a difficult task of sheep among wolves, which require focus and avoiding distractions. So they have to travel light, and that's much of what he's describing there. Uh, don't be distracted by the things in the world. Enlighten yourself for the mission. The woes to unrepentant cities that you see there in verses 13 through 16 reveal the fact that many will not accept the message. And that's why they have these woes pronounced upon them, because they rejected the message. 
in the face of all the miracles that Jesus performed in those cities. They rejected. They didn't believe. It also supports the principle of much being required from those to whom much is given. Just a side note. God does require more from those that he has given more. If you're from a long line, generations past, of Christians, great-grandparents, grandparents, and parents, and all of that grace has been poured into your life, God requires a return, a response, a correct response. This principle is laid out here in many other places in the Bible. To whom much is given, much is required. I want to focus now, though, on the three scenarios. We need to enlist in the mission, and once we have enlisted in this task for him in his service, Jesus gives some instructions that will help us endure. The 72 were sent out with guidance, as I mentioned previously. And in verse 17, they returned. The main idea I want to draw your attention to is simple. Endurance is the result of correct priorities. And these instructions uh, gleaned from the words of Jesus. There's three that support that fact. Remember the joy of salvation. That will help us endure. Develop a correct response to salvation will also help us endure. And finally, focus on the source of salvation. These are all instructions gleaned from the words of Jesus in these three scenarios. Let's read, first of all, uh, verses 17 through 20. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus is redirecting here. It seems a little bit strange, actually. They've come back from the mission, and they're rejoicing in the victory that they experienced in the mission. The power of the name of Jesus, it was exposed to them and to everybody that they were encountering. There is power in his name. So it seems a bit odd to me that Jesus would say, rejoice not that the demons are subject to you. And then he does this like ultimate one-up. We all have that friend, I think, that any story we tell, they try to one-up it, like, immediately. You know, if you went up to the top of the Burj Khalifa and you saw the spectacular view, they'll tell you that they climbed the outside and jumped off and parachuted down, okay? <laughs> that we, we all have these friends that they, they one-up everything. Well, just, Jesus is like the ultimate one-up here. And he, when he said... First of all, before he said, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What you're seeing is really only a glimpse of reality. 
what has actually happened. Some say that this is referring to a past fall of Satan. Others say that it's primarily focused on what was presently happening. And some others that I read behind, commentaries, said that it's a futuristic, what Revelation says about the final defeat and binding of Satan and all of his followers. But I think what's in view here is probably best viewed as all three. It is everything, the totality, the, from the beginning, now, and continuing into the future, Jesus has in view the process of Satan's fall. But regardless, it is certainly clear that Jesus has authority over the legions of hell. And in his name, we have authority. We don't have to be subjected to them. They are subjected to us in the name of Jesus. The miracles, though, are validation and authentication process for his followers and for the entire world. And this is part of why Jesus says don't focus on it. Because it is a process of authentication. It's not something that God intends to continue or expand upon so that there's more and more and more of this going on. And it that is definitely how it has played out. It seems peculiar, though, anyway. Why not? Why not focus anyway on the miracles when they do occur? Why shouldn't we? The passage that Pedro let, read gives us a bit of insight. But if we look at the history of what the Bible reveals to us, about miracles, we find that miraculous manifestations do not result in a persevering faith. The Israelites coming out of Egypt, Moses even beforehand, God's instructions to him were, do this miracle, do this miracle. Maybe they'll hear. Did they, did they listen? Did they believe? No, they came up with another reason why. They conjured some other reason why this was a happening, not a direct miracle from God. And that's what humanity has done from the beginning, even to now. We have all these scientific reasons why things exist, why they happen, why they can't happen. There's explanations explaining away God. But the Israelites, God's own people, who he called out of Egypt, they're experiencing daily miracles. The food that they ate every day was miraculous. When they slept at night, it was by the miraculous pillar of fire. When they journeyed through the day, it was a miraculous cloud over their head. The sea opened before that. Their enemies was defeated. Everything was so miraculous. And yet, how long did it take them? to turn to the golden calf built by their own hands and rob God of his glory. You see, the miraculous is not something we should obsess on. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not something that we should look to as evidence of God. That's what Jesus said. 
1 Corinthians 13, 8, Paul says, I love this, that he is alluding to the same thing. Love never ends. That's how he begins that verse. And then he says, as for prophecies, they will pass away. There's coming a day when there's no need for prophecies. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Love never ends. There's coming a day when there's no need for these things. Right now, in this fallen and corrupted world, we look at miraculous things and we are amazed. Matthew 12, 39, Jesus says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And Jesus goes on and draws the parallel, what the sign of the prophet Jonah is himself, his death, burial, and resurrection. And he's pointing to the same thing again there. Have you ever considered this, that there will be no miracles in heaven? There's coming a time when the miraculous will be a (laughs) non-event. And that's what Jesus is pointing here to. Here on earth, in our experience now, there are momentary glimpses of what is normal in heaven. We should not obsess over these manifestations as if that is what makes life fulfilling because it's not. We rejoice that our names are written in heaven because of the hope that it gives us of an existence one day when there will be no more need for these miraculous things to occur. Every moment in heaven is a miracle. And nothing will penetrate that environment. No corruption from this life will enter into that existence. And that's what Jesus is saying. This will help you to endure when you realize the hope of heaven, the hope of that perfection, of that existence where God finally visits upon us all, his entire family, the miraculous for eternity. It never ends. It will never end. I... I want to share something about my mom that I only, years and years later, thought about it this way. And anyone who has, uh, are personally suffering from an illness, or you have loved ones suffering from an illness, or any suffering at all, this is, this is not meant to try to say that we should not intervene in prayer but this is this is my 30 years past the event with my mom in uh, retrospect she, she had a really hard life and you know I, I wish that I had had the opportunity to tell her how much I appreciated her but see that full realization didn't come to me until years after she was gone, how much she meant to me. 
and what a hero she was. But what was really discouraging for me is that she, she suffered from so many physical ailments and really too young. She died when she was 55, and she had colon cancer and then liver cancer. And I remember being so discouraged. Because it just didn't seem that this should be the existence of a person who depended on God. But I wasn't really looking at it right. I wasn't looking at it correctly. Now I see that my prayers for my mom to be healed was delaying the greatest miracle that God performed in her life. Now she's complete. She's whole. Now she's perfected. Now there's no more pain. There's no more tears. Her struggle is over. You see, and that's why Jesus says, don't obsess over these glimpses that you see of God's perfection entering into our broken existence. Rejoice that one day that will be the normal existence. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven because God will end all of our suffering on that day. And that will help us to endure. Miracles in heaven are not necessary because they would be redundant. And that's an eternal perspective. Reflecting a correct priority and view of this life and what God is planning to do for us in the future. And it produces perseverance in service regardless of the difficulties that we face. When we keep that in view, we persevere through anything because it doesn't matter at the end of the day anymore what difficulties we face. God has healed us. God has cured us. And it will all be settled in that next life. It's also important that we develop, besides this uh, focus or remembering the joy of our salvation. That's what Jesus is saying. Remember the joy of salvation, what you have been rescued from, and the finality of that rescue. We also need to develop a correct response to salvation with our brothers and sisters, the world that we exist in. Verse 25 of Luke chapter 10, I'm going to begin reading there. And behold... A lawyer stood up to put him to the test. That's never a smart thing to do, right, to test God. I'm sure the lawyer didn't realize that he was testing God. But the teacher, he said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said, Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. That's pretty amazing. He answered, he nailed it. But he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, with a story. Okay, this is a familiar story. 
And I think maybe Jesus took a deep breath and he said, I'm going to have to paint this lawyer into a corner and, and isolate him in exactly what he's trying to do so that I can expose him and so he can see that he's thinking incorrectly. And he tells the entire story of a familiar story to us, the Good Samaritan. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. It's a common uh, throughway where robbers were known to attack people. They stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. So this guy, was, he was in a bad way. He needed help. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, that would be shocking to the priest, the Levite, and everyone else who was listening to this story in that day, that a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. So this is the extra mile. The good Samaritan not only stopped and helped him, had compassion, but he went the extra mile. And he made provision for him in the future beyond when he was able to stay there with him. Take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He, the lawyer, said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, you go and do likewise. The lawyer, unfortunately, asked the wrong question because he had the wrong perspective. He asked two questions. The first one he asked was, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And that's the wrong question to ask. Now, the answer could have been, I'm not sure why Jesus didn't answer in so many other ways, but Jesus knows why. He, he knew the heart of the lawyer, the mind of this lawyer, and he knew which way to go. But he could have just simply said, you can do nothing. Because that's the truth. You can do nothing to inherit eternal life. You don't deserve it. You've already blown it. You can't recover. You're doomed. There's nothing you can do. There's something I can do, Jesus. So I can save you. But there's nothing you can do. He didn't answer it that way. But the lawyer, obviously, the Bible says he's trying to justify himself. He asks another question. Who is my neighbor? And this is the lawyer trying to legalistically figure out exactly what's required by the law. And he's like, I guess, most lawyers. I hope there's not lawyers here today. We need lawyers, okay? <laughs> but lawyers, they're kind of slippery, you know. They're always trying to find the loophole in the law. And it's like this bar of soap. You can never get a hold of it. And that's because he's trying to justify himself. And it's the wrong approach to take. He asked two incorrect questions. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And who is my neighbor? Jesus turned them back on him and turned them around even. The questions. It's first of all foolish and unfruitful to test God. 
We should not burden ourselves with any attempt to justify ourselves because that's a burden that we cannot bear. We can't do it. It's not possible for us to justify ourselves in anything that we engage in, whether it's in the church, in the community, in our families, anything that we engage in out of guilt, a sense of appeasing God, it's for nothing. Because only Jesus' sacrifice can appease God. Our work cannot appease Him. We work out of appreciation for what God has done for us. That's why we engage in this process. That's why we engage in His service. Simply out of appreciation. Nothing else. Now Jesus, He does not answer directly, but He redirects with His own questions. He says in verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? That's response to the lawyer when he said, what shall I do? Amazingly, the lawyer got the answer exactly right. But I think he failed to realize that he was unable to fulfill the requirements of that law that he quoted. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus could have said there, that is right, you can't do it, but I am going to do it. But he didn't say that either. In verse 36, he turned the other question around back on the lawyer also. After the whole story about the Good Samaritan, in answer to the lawyer's question where he said, who is my neighbor? And he tells the entire story. But notice the question that Jesus asked him back. It's the opposite. Which of these three proved to be a neighbor? See, the perspective of the lawyer was, what is my requirement? Who is my neighbor that I need to love as myself? But Jesus said, which one of these three, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, Prove to be a neighbor. And that's the focus that we should have. We should be concerning ourselves not with who we are obligated to do anything for, but our obligation is to just be the neighbor, be the Good Samaritan, be that person who engages with the entire world around us with compassion and empathy and mercy, knowing that we're all in the same boat. And we all need the same thing. And that's the point that Jesus is trying to make. The correct response to salvation, our salvation, the fact that we have been redeemed, that everything's been paid, that we are justified. We don't need to try to justify ourselves. The correct response is empathy, compassion, and merciful love towards our fellow man. Because we're in the same predicament that they are. We need the same thing. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And those of us who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good should respond out of gratitude because of the mercy and grace extended to us. I think we should ask ourselves, are we trying to justify ourselves? Because that will lead to discouragement and bitterness. Because it can't be done. Frustration. 
Our service has to be born out of this gratitude. That's what Jesus is pointing to. And that will lead to endurance. That will help us as we move in this transition period without a senior pastor, without a full-time staff, and it seems like maybe things are, the workload is increasing. This will help us to have endurance. We do what we do because we remember the joy of our salvation, all that God has done for us, and so we return back into the community that we live in, in our families, in our church community, and into the whole world right here in Abu Dhabi. This is the mission. This is what we're here for. And we need to engage. And remember these instructions that Christ has given us. We cannot satisfy the requirements of the law, but Christ accomplished that for us. And our only reasonable response to what Christ has done for us is to return. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and overflowing. That overflow of what God has done for us, how we experience all that he has done for us, it's the overflow that is our service to the world around us. Not only do we need to remember the joy of our salvation and respond correctly to that knowledge and all that God has done for us and respond with compassion and empathy and mercy and love for our fellow man, and serve because that motivates us to serve. Not only should we do that, but we should also focus on the source of salvation. Read with me verses uh, 38 through 42. Another familiar passage. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him, welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. This passage is not so much about what you should not do and what you should do, but it's about balancing service and reflection. It's difficult for us to strike that balance in our service. But we must strike a balance between engaging in the work of ministry and also reflection. Jesus, though, emphatically establishes which has priority, what is the most important thing. He says in John chapter 15 that we must abide in him. He's saying the same thing there, that he's saying about Mary has done here what is most important. Mary is focusing on what Jesus has for her, that relationship that we have and the Spirit of God that comes and joins with us to encourage us and empower us in ministry. 
Jesus says it's imperative that we nourish our own soul first, and daily we must abide in him. That's what Jesus is saying here. Martha's frustration was caused here by her focus on what others should do. And anytime we start to focus on the people around us and what they should be doing, <laughs> it's going to lead to frustration. Because we do what we do. Whenever we engage in service, in ministry, in the deeds that we are called to do as Christians, exerting influence on the world around us for His glory, any time that we do that, we should not be focused on what anyone else is doing or comparing who's doing the most or who should do more. And that's what happened to Mary. She fell into a situation of discouragement and even requesting that Jesus tell Martha what to do. And throughout the Bible, whenever anyone tries to tell Jesus to tell someone, he never does it. <laughs> it seems that their motive is always wrong. And that's why Jesus says, no, actually, Martha, Mary has done what is most necessary, and that is sitting at the foot of Jesus. It's important that we focus continually, daily, on the source of our salvation. I probably should have put this first. This point does come first. It is the first thing. It is the priority. How do we endure in service? How can we endure, persevere in this life of difficult, many times, service? We do it by focusing, first and foremost, on the source of our strength, and that is Jesus. We must engage. And especially, not especially, always, in every situation. But I'm emphasizing it now particularly because we are in this transition period. The good thing about this transition period is this. Really, there's no one for us to look to and say, it's their job. <laughs> it's our job. The ministry of New Life Church is our ministry. This is what we are doing. We are the people of God. And this ministry will be a direct reflection of all of our efforts. As sometimes when we have a full staff, there's so many that sit back on their laurels and just say, they've got it. Well, there's no one to say that about. And I think this is an opportunity for New Life Church to be strengthened. Because when we all engage, that is what Christ intended. That's why he sent out the 12. That's why he sent out the 72. And he gave them instructions to make disciples, to send out more. And that's important for us to consider and remember. In this transition period, it's an opportunity. And we should all take advantage of the opportunities that we have to engage in the ministry for His glory. That is how we demonstrate how much we love Him and how much we appreciate all that He has done for us. And we endure through all of it because we know that in the end, He has accomplished everything that we could possibly hope for and more. It's all there waiting for us. It's done. It's finished. There's nothing for us 
to try to accomplish. There's no justification that we need to now present to him. We are justified. And that ends empowering for us in our ministry. It's crucial for our church community to be characterized by believers who take individual responsibility for their own walk. See, that relationship that we each uh, nourish with Christ, that is what unites us. That's what keeps us on the same page. We each individually need to focus on the source of our salvation. When we spend time in prayerful meditation, in conclusion... And reflection in God's word, focusing on the source of our salvation, the Spirit of God will reorient us to a disposition of rejoicing that our names are written down. And then we will be so full of gratitude and joy that we respond by giving, helping, serving, and loving our families, our church community, and the world around us. And we will endure, we will persevere through anything any difficulty, and will not be weary in well-doing, in well but we will continue to serve until the day that Jesus returns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you this morning that you have accomplished all that is necessary for our redemption. We praise you, we worship you, and we thank you. And the way that we thank you is with our service in your kingdom. And we can endure, Lord, because we know that you have set before us the hope of eternity. And we know that every difficulty that we face here is only momentary. It's only temporary. But the permanent, the eternal, is what fuels us in our mission and in our service for you. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the spirit of your spirit that you have sent to encourage us and to empower us. We thank you, Father, that you have redeemed us. And we know that you will accomplish and you will complete the process of our transformation and perfection in the future. We praise you, Lord. We lift up your name in all that we do today. We pray is honoring to you, and we do it all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.